They say all roads lead to Rome. They say Rome wasn't built in a day. They say when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And the Apostle Paul, in his fifth of the 13 letters he's going to write of the New Testament, in his letter to the Christians at Rome, he's saying, when in Rome, don't do as the Romans do, do as Jesus says. And we are in a series where we're going to take most of this rest of this year and take inch by inch, as I've said before, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Golden, who's from Carolinas, he he said, inch by inch, everything's a cinch, Jeremy. Yard by yard, everything's hard. So he'd say, inch by inch, write that paper. Inch by inch, you know, tackle that goal. Inch by inch. And we're going to take inch by inch this book, this letter to us, not just to the saints at Rome, but to the saints here. Rome was dealing with an upside down culture, a culture that had lost its spiritual geometry. There was no up, there was no down, there was no left, there was no right. They were lost in their sin. And it sounds very familiar of the, may not be uh, R-O-M-E, but it is definitely USA, that we are also lost in our figuring things out of not this kingdom, but God's kingdom. As we've already learned that the book of Romans, there's a foundational message. And the foundational message is the gospel. And if I were to give everybody a three by five card and you were to write for the next 30 seconds, give me a statement of what is the gospel or, or in the original language, what is the good news? What is the gospel? If it's so powerful, if it's so important, if it's the gospels, uh, if it's the gospel message that's, that has power for us, what is it? And in the very first chapter, the Apostle Paul gives it to us. So I'm going to recap from last week that the gospel is this. It is a promise. It's a promise of creator God from a person that was truly God and truly man. It is not a philosopher. It's not just a teacher. It is the divine son of the living God, Jesus Christ. This promise from him who died but did not stay dead. He is now alive, all powerful, preparing a place in heaven for those that believe in him. You don't prepare it. You don't make your mansion just over the hilltop. He prepares it for you. It's what he could do and build, not what you could do or build. And what he offers in this promise of those, of he who is alive and well with power raised from the dead, he offers us grace and identity. I said it last week, an old acrostic for grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches. Think about the richness of God. I mean, his streets are made of gold. Like it's just pavement for him. I mean, we go crazy over gold and it's just, you know, asphalt for him. And the riches of God, God's riches, God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ paid for the God's riches to be available to you and to anyone who believes he is who he says he is and puts their faith in him. And in that first chapter, Paul says, man, I am obligated. I got no choice. I've got a cure. I've got an answer to a sickness way beyond cancer. It's the most deadliest disease. It's sin. And sin is not the act I commit. It's the authority I reject. It's rejecting the authority of God in any place of my life. That's sin. 
He says, I'm obligated. I am also eager. I'm excited. You'd think he wouldn't be because he's been beaten within an inch of his life multiple times. He has been shipwrecked three times. He's been imprisoned. He's been the laughing stock. He's been kicked out of town. He has been stoned in the street and still survived miraculously. And yet he's obligated. He's eager and he is unashamed. He's not hiding it. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation. So if salvation is so important, if Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost, the power of the gospel has got to be understood. So that's what we're going to jump into today. I want to start by showing you something. We're going to do a little object lesson here. I want you to, to look at these two circles. And at first glance, uh, look, these circles look identical. They are, they are different in color. Uh, one's blue, one's red. This is a psychological thing. Some of you are already getting heated up and you're thinking about elections. I, all you can think about, you see two circles, red and blue. Bless God, elephants and donkeys. <laughs> now, at first glance, they, they look identical, but um, actually, uh, I'm going to show you one of these is bigger than the other. One of these circles is bigger than the other. So take a closer look. What you thought was identical at the beginning, one is bigger than the other. So let me do a quick poll of all of our locations. Raise your hand. <clears throat> if, if you think the blue one is bigger than the red one, raise your hand. Okay, we got some blues in the house. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you think, blue people? The red one's bigger. The red one's bigger. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Um, how many of you at the beginning, though, thought they both did look identical? You'd raise your hand. Yeah, okay. The reason you thought they looked identical is because they are. <laughs> they are exactly identical. And when you first saw them, that was your immediate response to very clear truth. Very clear, what you could see with your eyes made perfect sense. These are identical. What I just showed you and what you just witnessed is how easily every single one of us can be so easily manipulated to believe something different than what we actually see. How just a little, and if we can be bent that quickly how much more since the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden is the enemy desiring to take what you see as clarity and twist it into his agenda for your life? How quickly would he want to manipulate you and me to try and believe something that then would create tradition and create culture? This is the challenge we're up against. If you're taking notes, write it down. If the enemy can get me to believe I'm not really lost, if the enemy can get me to believe I'm not really, I don't really need this gospel, this power for salvation. I, I don't really need to be confronted with my depravity and confronted with my sin, the ways I reject God. If, if the enemy can get me to believe just slightly that I'm not really lost, well, then I won't really need the gospel. I mean, that's good for you. Your truth is your truth. Let my truth be my truth. I'm going to let my circles be my circles, and I'll, I'll choose to look at them and see them however I choose to look at them and see them. 
And the Apostle Paul, he is preparing like a prosecuting attorney. He is going to give us the evidence. He is going to set it all up for us to understand how the enemy works. And the Apostle Paul wants to start here. He wants to say, you need you to know you're really lost. You don't need me to know you're really lost. You don't need your grandma to know you're really lost. You don't need your parents to know you're really lost. You need you to know you're really lost before you can ever be found, before you can ever be saved. And the enemy's devices is he would love to convince each and every one of us, regardless of his trap, regardless of the bait that he would lay out in front of us, He wants all of us to believe that, are we really lost? Isn't God just love and it's just okay? We just kind of figure it out on our own. No, 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 no. You need you to know we're really lost before you can really receive grace. Because the person that doesn't realize they need grace won't stretch their hand out and receive it. And you and I. We need grace. So, Paul, today, ladies and gentlemen, he is going to make the case, and we're going to break it down one piece at a time. Enter the courtroom with me. The case, Crater God versus Humanity. The charge. That's right, Pastor Jeremy. Humanity is deliberately rejected God. Is that right? That's right. The accused is all of us. It's not just Rome. It's you and me and us three and us four. The prosecutor is the Apostle Paul. He's going to be laying it out. The defense, honestly, we got no excuse. We're going to sit there and see what Paul has to say. And he's going to lay out the evidence. Verses 18 to 32. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Romans chapter 1. Here we go. Okay. You clap it way too easily. That's, that's, don't, don't clap at that. And so here in God's court, as the honorable creator of the cosmos takes his bench and says you may be seated, he's going to hear the evidence himself. And here's how Paul lays it out for you and for me. Starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. It's a, it's a, it's a present tense. It wasn't way back in the day. It's currently being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Notice what it's against. It's against all the godlessness and wickedness. Notice that he doesn't say it's revealed from heaven against all of people. It's against the godlessness and wickedness. So let's unpack starting here. The wrath of God. You are going to experience all of my wrath if you don't clean your room by 3 p.m. Like, what is real wrath? When you think the words, the wrath of God, if, you're, if you are a normal human, you might think and associate the words like violence, explosiveness, loss of control, and outrage. Because when we think wrath on this earth, that's what we think. But, but, but don't get it twisted. The wrath of God, he is never out of control. He is never senseless. He is never blowing his top. He he is never like, oh, I just, mm, I should have, could have, would have. He is perfect in everything he does. He has purpose behind everything. The wrath of God, you can write it down like this, is controlled anger toward sin. 
It is not controlled anger toward you. It is controlled anger towards sin. How many of you have ever had your kids do something that makes you so angry? You're not even angry at them. You're angry at the stuff. You're angry at the situation. And it is a controlled anger. What is he angry towards? What is this? He starts with godlessness. A godlessness. Which if you're writing this down, we are guilty of this. And that is basically living like God doesn't exist. I was standing as an eighth grader in my garage in Paola, Kansas. I was straddling my bike and my three friends were looking at me. I was looking out the big garage door. Behind me was the door that would go into the utility room in our house there on 103 Morningside Drive. And I'm straddling my bike and we're talking about some other kids in the neighborhood. And I start kind of trying to impress my buddies that are right there straddling their bikes. And I start laying down some language that ain't PG, okay? I start saying, yeah, yeah, well those blankety blanks gonna understand and I'm all trying to act all hard. You know, I'm in eighth grade, I'm like four foot one and 82 pounds and, and I'm like, yeah, those, you know, blankety blanks and whatever. I wanna, I'm not gonna say it, I, but you know, anyway, I'm not gonna. So as I'm telling this, the eyes of my friends get wider and wider. And so I st I'm laying it on thicker and thicker because I think I'm an impressive, I'm, the P I'm a pastor's kid and they're not, you know, but I'm gonna do whatever, I'm gonna say whatever. Their eyes get so big, once I take a breath, I hear behind me, boys, I don't know how long, but long enough, my mom had been standing there with the door open, listening to me drop whatever bombs all over, she goes, boys, Jeremy's gonna be grounded for a long time. You should ride your bikes home now. And I'm like, don't leave me, you know? It was a momlessness. <laughs> I was living in momlessness, not thinking that she was there, listening to every single word and living like mom didn't exist, saying whatever I thought, whatever I jolly well pleased, and that's exactly how we live. The wrath of God is against our godlessness as though we can just live like, like we're God, that God is an afterthought. He's just a flare prayer. He's not that big of a deal. He's only, he's like, he's like the, the tire, he's like the tire jack in my trunk. I only go to him if something's gone wrong. I only think about it if ever I'm inconvenienced by something. But we're also guilty of wickedness which godlessness is more of our vertical relationship. And so if you get your vertical relationship jacked up, you're gonna have your horizontal relationships jacked up. And he basically says we're living without any rules. So as we live without a God, with, with godlessness, we are gonna live without any rules, my rules. I become the final rule maker, the final authority. And that is, that's the issue. That's the case that, that the Paul is, is saying we all, we all, it's being revealed. God's angry at the godlessness and the wickedness. And now he begins to give us the evidence. And he begins to, he, he shows us that the evidence, write it down, the evidence is gonna be unmistakable and undeniable. It is not gonna be circumstantial evidence. Well, some might see it this way and others might see it another way. And if the glove don't fit, you gotta acquit and whatever else. It's unmistakable, it's undeniable, it's DNA evidence, it's DNA evidence in all of us. 
You know how many cases, death row cases, have been overturned in America alone because now we have DNA evidence? This is DNA. It's unmistakable. It's undeniable. It's in our bones. It's in our blood. The evidence. He begins to unpack it this way. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And here's how. Those people suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power his divine nature have been clearly seen how can you see something invisible well it's clearly seen the evidence is there in the power and the divine nature being understood from what has been made, creation all around us. And all of this can be understood and can be plain to us and plainly seen so that people, you and me and everybody else, are without excuse. So there's three things that happen when we choose not to believe, when we choose to say, no, 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 no. One circle is different than the other. And we ignore what we really see. First is this, we suppress the truth of God when we say we didn't know. Your kids ever act up and do something, I mean, unbelievably stupid, and then they say, I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm sorry, I didn't know. I didn't know you wanted me to go to bed. I thought you made me stay up until three in the morning. I didn't know. Oh, you knew. It, it's like, the, it's, it's like the, the man who walked into uh, the mall one day, and as he was walking into the mall, he, he passed a, a, a pet store, and there was a parrot inside uh, the cage at the front of the pet store, and as the man walked by, the parrot went, ah, you're fat. I know the man knew he was a little overweight, but that's a little insensitive. He went in, got his stuff. As he walked back by the pet store, Parrot goes, you're fat. So he gets a little frustrated. He walks into the man. I want to talk to a manager. Manager goes, can I help you? He says, yeah, the Parrot out there calling me names. Do what? Do what? Are you serious? He says, yeah, you need to deal with it. I don't like this. I'm going to give you a one-star review on Facebook. I'm going to anonymously post on Angel what's happening to Angelina and Agadotes. So the manager, I mean, this is not very, I mean, this isn't very nice, but the manager goes and opens that cage and, and grabs that parrot and says, shut up, you dumb parrot. Shut up. Puts it back in the cage, slams the door. The man's like, okay, okay. This guy means business. He leaves. Well, what he bought didn't fit him right, so he has the receipt the next day. He walks by back to the store. And as he's walking by the pet store, this wasn't in first service. I don't know how I got into this one. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. As he walks by, the parrot looking at him right in the eyes. And the man's just like, yeah, say it, say it, you know, and he just walks by. The man goes into the store, returns his stuff, gets his cash back. As he's walking by, the parrot... <laughs> Just almost as the man gets by, the parrot goes, Bark! 
you know. <laughs> you know. That's why it came up. Because we suppress the truth when we say we don't know. Like a, like a beach ball that you try to push underneath the water and hold it there, that's what suppression is. If you have a repressed memory, it's a memory you don't even know you have that at some point shows up. A suppressed memory is something you hold down and you don't want to think about it, but it's there. In World War II, after the devastation across Europe with Nazi Germany, General Patton arrived in Ordorf, Germany, one of the places of the very first concentration camp. When General Patton stepped out of the Jeep and to this very first concentration camp, they got there fast enough with the Allied forces that they didn't get a chance to uh, get rid of the evidence. And there were open graves and hundreds and hundreds of bodies piled on top of one another. And this General Patton, his first reaction is he grabbed the wheel well and he began to throw up. It was that devastating even to this larger than life leader. He called the mayor and his wife to this concentration camp of that small town just on the outskirts of that camp. He said, you get every single able-bodied man and woman and teenager. You are going to bury every single one of these bodies. Not one of these bodies is gonna be left unburied. The mayor and his wife and several from the camp, from the town, buried everybody. Two weeks later, the townspeople found the mayor and his wife had hung themselves in their living room. They left a note, and the note said, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. Our whole, our whole world didn't know, but we knew. And how easily we can suppress the truth. God says we're guilty of that. He goes on to say, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So not only do we suppress the truth, but uh, their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts are darkened. So we suppress, we hold down like the beach ball underwater, but then not only that, we reject the truth of God. We suppress it, and then we reject the truth of God uh, by when we don't see, when we, when we stop glorifying or thanking God. What is glorifying God? Giving him the weight he deserves. Giving him the full weight of glory he deserves. And thanking him, giving him the gratitude he deserves. And we reject God when we don't consider his weight of his words in the matter, in the situation in our lives. Do you know that his full weight, his full glory, you can't see all his glory. You, he shows you a little bit of glory, he can kill you. Like he, he suppresses his own glory so that you can approach him. He's all powerful, all glorious. And we suppress and reject that authority. It's like wrestling with my kids when they're smaller and they pin me in the living room. And I say, oh, I can't get up. I'm, I'm holding back my full weight of my glory. They're not pinning dad. I'm letting them pin me. Oh, you got me. And many times we think that that's how we treat God. No, God, I got this. No, 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 God, you stand over there in the corner. Let me live my life. Let me do it the way that it needs to be done. I'll be fine. You do you, I'll do me. And we reject 
by not glorifying him or not by giving, by giving him no thanks for who he is. And so pride, it, 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 it weeds up into everything we are. And so although they claim to be wise, <laughs> which doesn't this culture claim that? We've arrived, oh, this whole Bible thing so antiquated. How can you be living based on something that's so old? I mean, did, did God really say all this? <laughs> and all you're doing is regurgitating the very first lie, the very first question that the enemy gave Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Does God really think? And although we think we are wise, we become fools. And we exchange. We, we take perfection, innocence, absolute vulnerability in the garden as humanity, perfect world, walking with God in unhindered, unfettered relationship, and we pluck off the tree of what we think is good and evil. Do you know, he said, don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He, did, he didn't expect us to even understand what evil is. He didn't even expect us to understand what good is. He just wanted to understand what God is. All he invited us into was who God is. Can I be enough for you? Or does your knowledge have to be more important than me? Does your intellect have to become more important to me? And we exchanged our vulnerability, innocence, nakedness, and no shame for what the enemy said, oh, that's a smaller circle. This is a bigger circle. This is what truth is. We made it for images made to look like a moral human being and birds and animals and reptiles, basically idols. And so we suppress the truth, we, re we reject the re truth, and we replace the truth of God with idols that are carved or cultured. It's not just a carved idol. You walk into the room and there it, uh, there it sits on the pedestal in your lobby of your home, in the front entrance of your house. No, 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 no. Idols are carved and idols are cultured. In today's, in today's United States of America, it's less about the wooden image and it's more about the way I feel, the way I act, the way I love, the way I understand my own intellect, my own wisdom, my own choices. Choices trump Christ. Choices trump truth. Choices trump the word. I just want to have my own choice. And we replace the truth of God with idols that are carved or cultured. And here's what Paul says are the results. If we live that way for long enough, here's the result. First is this. Therefore, and this, when you see a therefore, you understand that the following verses are, here's what they're there for. <laughs> this is what they're there for. Therefore, God gave them over. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over. Now watch, now watch this. Watch this. God never gives up. He doesn't give up. God, God doesn't give up on you. God doesn't give up on you. But, but, he will give us over to a life of disorder. He never gives up, but he will give you over to a life of dis 
order. God is the creator of all order. He's the creator of all things. He puts things, he sets things in motion. He is the God of order, not chaos. And when we say, no, God, let me do it our way, it's like the parents of a, 20, of a 19-year-old kid who has an addiction that keeps coming in and living his life and showing up and causing havoc there. And at some point, you've got to draw the line and you'll never give up on them. You'll never give up on your son. You'll never give up on your daughter. But there comes a time where you got you to give them over. And you got to trust God in this because you got to stop being mattress mom and mattress dad. That whenever they go to hit rock bottom, you're just going to slide another mattress underneath them and you become mattress mom and dad. And you're just going to save the day again. Sometimes you just got to give them over. And God as a loving father knows that right time and that right way to give us over. So God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. We now start getting into some uncomfortable scriptures, especially in this culture. It's not uncomfortable in every culture, but it can be. And it's uncomfortable because the following scriptures, all of them, including the ones that Paul packs right up front, are real issues that you face, that I face, that your friends face, that people that are anonymous face and people that like grew up at your dinner table face. All kinds of stuff mixed in with our identity and our love and our appetites and our attractions. He begins to unpack these scriptures. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things. I don't mean totem poles, I mean you and me. We are created things. And we love to worship us. We love to worship the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Now because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, the list doesn't stop there. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gives them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They, meaning us, meaning all of humanity, have become filled to the brim with every kind of depravity and evil and greed and wickedness. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips. We are gossips. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I love how that one's thrown in there. Don't forget it, kids. That one seems to be a little, you know, kind of, Really? When all the other, like, murder, dishonest, arrogant. Disobey your parents. He's not, he's not picking and choosing. He's not picking and choosing. He's, he's bringing us all to reality here. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Do you know what marital infidelity is? Okay? Doesn't matter what your sexual appetite or sexual attraction is. He says there is no fidelity. There's infidelity. There's all kinds of issues. And in these scriptures, Paul, you can write it down. He, he unpacks 21 ways 
we sin. 21 different ways we sin. So here, here, here what I want to do now is unpack a few of these disordered sins. The way that God intended, but yet it's been, it's been out of order. If you go put a quarter, well, if you go put 12 quarters in a Coke machine and you press the button and the Coke doesn't come out, if that happens often enough, usually somebody in management is going to put an out of order sign on it. It doesn't mean that the coat comes and then you put the coins in. It's not that you're doing it in the wrong order. Out of order just is another way of saying this thing's broken. It's broken. And when we live life out of order, it's basically saying we're living a life that in God's eyes is broken. So let's go back to the top of the list and let's unpack some of these. Women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also natural relationships with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. This would be, you can write it down, sexual disorder. Because Paul is trying to make a case of the natural order of things, the natural order of creation. And he doesn't put same-sex attraction, he doesn't put homosexuality at the top of this list uh, because he's homophobic or because he's trying to pick on homosexuals. He's putting what in many instances, when you look at creation and you look at the perfect garden before man fell, the way God designed a perfect world, the only sexual ethic God created in the perfect world before the fall of man was a man and a woman together for life. With the fall of man, anything goes. And we exchange anything we want, however we want, with whatever we want. And we get things out of God's original design. And so instead of following God's design, we end up following our desires. And the reason he puts it up front is not, is not to get on a soapbox. It's to say out of all of God's order, this is the one that has the clearest evidence of a departure from God's intended design. It, it, it's a departure from that original design mechanisms of male and female. And he doesn't stop there. Now, what I want to say is there is be so much that I could say right now. And there's so much feeling right now. There's so much potential tension in the room. I certainly have felt it preparing to come to this because, uh-oh, I thought this was a church anyone can come to. I, I, I thought that this church, you know, said it's, it's okay not to be okay, it's just not okay to stay that way. Well, I thought I was okay, and now you're telling me, wait a second, the lifestyle that I've chosen, I can't, I think God loves me just as I am. You can come before God just as you are. You can. But God has ordered our steps. He has the design. And here's what happened. The reason why this one in and of itself, because I'm going to get to the other ones. But this one, the reason why there's so much tension here is because I have loved ones that I've had Thanksgiving dinner with that as I read this, and if this is true, if God's word is true, they are suppressing that truth or replacing that truth or rejecting that truth. And to grapple with that hard. 
And for you to be in this room and to grapple with that, it's not easy. And you know what the church has done, honestly? I mean, we, we, we screwed it up a lot, to be honest. Because for years, for years, all we did was preach the conviction of this with no compassion towards this. And so like we do most of the times when we get a wheel in the ditch, we overcorrect. And so now we've shifted over towards, we preach a lot of compassion towards this. And we don't know where to even have a conviction on this. Like, how can, how can I not? Like, I don't want to. I was just having this conversation with a, with a deep friend who's, who, who has, a, has a relative that was born Sally, but she wants to be called Sam. She believes that she is a male. When she looks in the mirror, she struggles with who she is. And her biology says one thing, but, but in the mirror, all the way down, all of her emotions and her desires and stuff is saying something else. And she's trying to make sense of this. In the meantime, she wants her family to call her Sam. And if you can't call me Sam, then we can't have relationship. And the family, having convictions according to the word of God, doesn't want to lose relationship with her. So they don't know, well, just, should I just have my kids so I'll start calling her Sam? You either come all my way and see what happens on both sides of those is we have compassion and conviction on both sides. I'll show you how. For the person struggling with trans transgenderism, or gender dysmorphia. They're gonna say, they're gonna say, you come my way. I have a conviction. And I'm not gonna have any compassion towards your held beliefs. You either come all my way or it's no way. And then on the other side, you may be struggling with, no, 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 no. I'm gonna call you Sally because that's your name. It's a female. You're not Sam and you're struggling and you're fighting and both relationships are torn apart because both are not figuring out how to just have a dadgum conversation anymore. So I'm not, try I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm trying to give you, I'm trying to give you the antidote to life and that's 100% grace and 100% truth. As we talked about this, we, we talked about the reality of, with another, with another deep friend of, of ours, I used this example months earlier. I said, hey, go in with your child and say, you and I, it's like we walked into the kitchen and there was a fire on the stove and it was blazing. And before reacting, there was a fire, so we just threw water on it, but we didn't realize it was a grease fire and it just got bigger. We tried to douse it out. We had good intentions, but it got bigger. And now we're outside in the backyard and we're watching our house burn down. We're watching our house burn down. I said, you feel like you're born this way, but you're this way. I feel like this. And we're just throwing water on a grease fire. And I'm wondering, can we just both find the flower? And can we just, can we just save the house? Can we just sit down and just start having a conversation? Can we just figure out how to have, can you let me, how can I be true to my convictions and have compassion for you? And how right now, even though your convictions are not mine, how can you be true to your convictions and have compassion with me? And how can we come together and then pray to God the Holy Spirit does what only the Holy Spirit can do? How do you do that? Instead of walking away from the grease fire, just put it out and let's start having conversations again.
oh, I don't want you to leave, thinking there's no hope, or thinking that your sister or your loved one or your friend or your spouse is not welcome here. You're welcome here. You're welcome here. But the word of God exposes itself. It's the mirror. It's the mirror. The transmorphous situation, the transgender situation, they're looking in the mirror saying, I don't see what you see, I see something else. I look in the mirror and I don't see what my wife sees in me. It doesn't have to do with my gender, but it sure as heck can be about my identity and about my value and about my worth. Furthermore, God sees something when I look in the mirror that I want to see, but he sees it and I can't see it. And I want, I want, look, who am I? Who loves me? What am I called to do? What's my calling? What am I supposed, what am I here for? If you will just lean in that God sets your identity and God loves you more than anybody could ever love you. And he will give you direction for your feet. We start there and God will help us figure it out. We start there. All right, that's all. Goodbye. No, I'm kidding. Here, look at this. It's not just sexual disordering of our lives. We're filled with unrighteousness and evil and greed and wickedness. You know what that is? That's economic disorder. Look at this. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips and slanderers. Can I get a witness? About 92% of us. Kidding. 100% of us. That's social disorder. I'm talking about... Facebook, socially disordering the love and face of God by being jerks and critical and ruthless and rude and arrogant and slanderous and deceitful and full of malice and envy by what you're commenting on in Facebook. God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. Inventors, you were so smart, we're inventing it. That's spiritual disordering of our lives. We're disobedient to parents. We're senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. What is this? We've all experienced it. Family and relational disorder. Marital disorder. Look at me. Everybody look up here. Let me show you something. Greed doesn't send you to hell. It's in the list, but greed doesn't send you to hell. Do you know why? Listen up, everybody. Listen up. Generosity doesn't send you to heaven. Greed's not going to send you to hell, but just being generous ain't going to open the gates either. Disobeying your parents won't send you to hell, but just obeying your parents won't send you to heaven. Quarrels won't send you to hell. But just because you're a kind person, that doesn't mean that you'll make it to heaven. Homosexuality doesn't send you to hell. You know how I know? Because heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven. Hell is the absence of God. Hell is my way. And when I choose my way over God's way in any way. That's what sin is. And sin doesn't enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So it's not the act I commit, it's the authority I'm rejecting. So although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, all of those from the gossip to the sexual perversion to the malice to the disobedience to the greed to the envy to the God-haters to the arrogance, to all of it, all 21 sins, we deserve death. And furthermore, they not only continue to do it, but we approve of those who practice these things. This is the dangerous place where we... Maybe we're not even dealing with one of those, but we're following, following their advice on Facebook. What God's saying, no, 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 there's contempt of court here. You know, contempt, like a disobedience, a disrespect, the disregard for the authority of God or the authority of the judge in that courtroom. We're held in contempt too because we have embraced and applauded sin as a culture, as a culture. Whew, and so had Rome. God, his anger wasn't at them. It was at the sin. So can I give you the truth? Can I give you the truth today as we wrap up? Uh, let me ask you this question. Do you want the truth? Do you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Uh, you want the truth? I'll, I'll give you the truth. Here's your truth. And it's God's truth, and it is the truth. You, you listening to this message, just know, and I'm gonna put it in us, in us person, okay? I'm the worst sinner I know. I'm the worst sinner I know, and you are the worst sinner you know. And Apostle Paul is going to show that to us in chapter 2, because the very first line we're not going to get to today, so we'll unpack. He says, so even though you know this, don't you be going around with judgmentalism. And the entire chapter is going to be about, yeah, yeah, and you, we, we give you all this list, and all of a sudden you, come, you become judgy mid-judgyton thinking you can judge everybody. You're looking at the speck in that person's eye. You're, you're, you're walking around like with your own sequoia tree sticking out your own eye saying, oh, did you hear that scripture he read? Look at them. Look at them. They look greedy to me, don't you? <laughs> Thank God I'm all holy. Thank God I'm all good. Thank God I got all my stuff taken care of and I'm not dealing with whatever's in that verse. How ridiculous of us. I'm the worst sinner I know. Oh, I need his grace. And the apostle Paul, as he wraps up this part of the law and order courtroom scene, he says, your honor, God almighty, there's the evidence, and I am asking that this be a guilty verdict, Your Honor. As you weigh the evidence, may it be guilty. And I know, as you know, that the sentencing is death. I know it, Your Honor. And he has laid it out for us, the case and the accused and the prosecutor and the defense and all of it. As Paul goes to say the prosecution rests. 
Paul in this moment does something radical. He does something crazy. This entire letter, he's going to not just be the prosecuting DA. But in this moment, he looks over at the defense who has no one representing him, which is you and which is me. We're without excuse. And our chins are tucked into our chest. And all we can do is sit there and listen to the damning evidence. The Apostle Paul pulls his hands off of his own desk. He says, Your Honor, can we approach the bench? Can we approach the bench? God calls him forward, and you and me walk with intimidation. Paul says, Your Honor, I've laid out the case, but I've not been eager to sentence this person. I've not been obligated to sentence this person. I'm not unashamed of all of their sin. Your Honor, I, I know the evidence is damning, but may I call? A material witness? Can you hear from a character witness who is an eyewitness, who is the material witness that if you'll hear what they have to say, it could turn the whole thing? God says, call your witness. And God knows exactly what's happening. Apostle Paul says, I want to call the one who makes all things new. I want to call the one that before the foundations of the earth were even formed, there was a plan for him to be slain in someone else's place. My next witness, Your Honor, is the one and the only, the bright and morning star, the sun of the living God. I want to call Jesus Christ. Jesus steps up. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The wages of their sin is death. But, but your gift is eternal life through me. So God, instead of them being sentenced to death, because they are guilty, I will take their guilt. I will pay their death sentence. It doesn't completely get them off the hook, but it pays for everything. If they still want to go and live out the sentence, they can. But Your Honor, if you will allow them to receive this gift that I want to give them, I believe that you will see them through my suffering, my payment, my shed blood, my righteousness that covers them, and you will set them free. 
And without hesitation, God says, done. And the most valuable treasure in heaven came to earth, gave up royalty, lived a perfect life to show you there was a promise by a person, truly God and truly man, who would be killed for you, but would be alive again in power to offer you grace and identity for anyone who would receive this plea bargain. It's a good offer. Listen to me. Take the offer. Take the offer. And remind yourself, the offer stands. Would you pray with me, all locations, close your eyes, bow your heads. First things first, he loves you. He's not giving up on you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what's on the list that you identify with, he sees you. He has identity way beyond you could understand, freedom beyond way that you could earn. Lean into him today. If that's you and maybe for the first time, first time in a long time, you're not ready to say, I have all the answers on where I need to go and what I need to do and what I need to change and where I need to stay, say stop and where I need to say go, but I do know I need your grace. I need your grace, Jesus. If it's, if it's available, I want to take it. I want to receive it. So in your own words, you would say, Jesus, thank you for dying in my place, for living the life I should have lived, giving me grace I couldn't earn. I wanna know who you say I am. I do wanna be loved, I'm afraid. But if you love me so much that you would give yourself like that, you must think I'm pretty important, so I wanna embrace your love and I wanna love you back and help me. God, I don't know all the next steps to take, but I want to follow you. I believe you are who you say you are. And I invite you to be the Lord of my life, your authority to be the final authority in my life. And maybe you're praying that for the first time, or you need to just be, remind yourself of the glory and the thanksgiving that he has deserved because you were once a wretched sinner too. You are saved by grace, just like me. So God, thank you. God, the sins that so easily entangle us even now, thank you, your grace is sufficient. We lean into you today. In Jesus' name, amen.